This podcast is a production of Journey, a church community inspiring people to live big. For more information, please visit cincyjourney.org. Amen. Good morning. We are here today uh, to talk as we continue in this series of The Next Best Thing about a new name. I'd given already Brad a new name. From now on, you may call him Bradley Jim. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I think is, is vital for us to recognize is that God does have something new for each of us, something very important to uh, impart to us. And it culminates in a new name. Now, there's a lot in a name. Uh, the name you're given has an impact on your life. Down in the mountains of Tennessee and sometimes on the border of Tennessee and Kentucky, people were given a unique name. Some parents wanted their children to have a name that was uniquely theirs. I once knew a family from Tennessee, and uh, the daughters were named Imanel, Ozel, Evelie, and they had two twin sons named Z3 and Zeniel. And they named all of their children. They finally got down to the last one born, the youngest, and they named him Joe. Not Joseph, just Joe, plain Joe. And, uh, but a person's name means something. Is it uniquely yours? Well, God has a uniquely your name, a name that is uniquely yours, you know, when in the ancient church, when uh, somebody got saved or there was a transformation in their life, they were given a new name. You know, think of Simon becoming Peter. You know, there was a transformation in his life. Uh, and that name bore significance for him. And the same is true in your life that whenever there is transformation, a new name should be required. We don't know what happened with Brad today. He might be Jim before it's all over with. But God has a purpose and a name for you. We're going to look at a text found in Revelation chapter 2. And as we dig into this text, I want us to look at some of the principles that bring us to the place of, of having a new name. Jesus in Revelation 2, chapter, verse 12, at chapter 2, verse 12, says, And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. That is Jesus speaking. Notice all the words are in red if you have your red-letter Bible. I know where you dwell, where Satan's seat is. And you hold fast my name. And do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because there are some of you who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak, kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality." Thus you have some in the same way who hold to the teaching of to the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, 
or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with my sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is what I want you to focus on. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give, give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Hide it in our hearts. Grow us in you. And let it be to us a living fount this day in our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. The church of Pergamum was uh, in a place where there was much spiritual darkness. Uh, Jesus says to the Pergamum church here that, I know where you live. You live where Satan's throne is, where his seat is. You live in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of spiritual darkness. Yet you've done a pretty good job. You've hung in there. You fought. You kept the faith. You kept going. Uh, but you're not perfect. There's one thing I want all Christians to know is they're not perfect. You're not. No matter how perfect you may think you are, you're not that perfect. And if you think you're perfect, you're really not perfect. Yeah. Uh, nobody understands everything they need to know. Nobody has arrived. We have not come to the place where we say, I've grown in my spiritual walk where nobody can teach me anything. Sorry, you're just a babe. You're just a little kid when it comes to God that really doesn't yet understand what they're doing. I think of John Wesley who preached, uh, rode on horseback over a Uh, 250,000 miles preaching the gospel to crowds of tens of thousands. And to him, the world was his pulpit. He he preached continuously, tirelessly. And when he was 87 years old and near death, he said, of the ocean of knowledge that's contained in this book, I've just got my feet wet. You don't know everything you need to know, and you're probably not doing everything you need to be doing. You got that? And here's the good news. That's exactly where God expects to find you. He doesn't expect you to have arrived or expect you to be perfect, but he does expect you to move up. I always say, God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. And just like a little child who, when we get our little babies, you know, my grandbabies, they start walking, uh, we're happy when they take their first few steps and we clap. Yay, that's wonderful. But would you say to a baby, oh, that's it. That's all you need to learn in life is those few steps. No. I'm not going to be happy till that baby can walk. And I won't be really happy till they're potty trained. And I will be really excited when they can take care of themselves. Because what is natural for a child, they must grow. We're pleased with that little baby. But we're not satisfied till they become everything they were intended to be. And so God may be pleased with you where you're at, 
but he's not satisfied till he brings you to where you need to be. So, Jesus says to him, you've got some people holding to things that put stumbling blocks in, in front of other people. You know, uh, sometimes we don't have to have a heresy of a doctrinal nature in our head, but sometimes we hold in our minds heresy of our own self-righteous opinions. Say amen or ouch. By that I mean simply... We think it ought to be this way, by golly, and that's the only right way for it to be. As a young preacher, I thought maybe I hadn't figured out what God's will was. At every turn when I thought I figured it out, God showed me something I had not anticipated nor understood, and then I grew to realize that the best thing I could pray is not, Lord, bless this which I've decided to do, it was simply to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, you do it, God. Because I don't know always what God is doing. We think we do, but we have not yet seen it all. Sometimes we discover just the tip of the iceberg with God, but there's a whole lot more lying underneath it that we need to see. And so God is always preparing us for greater and grander things with more things to do, and yet we don't see. And we have to get over the heresy of our good opinions. By that, Jesus says, there are some things that you are doing in your life, and he says, you know, you need to turn that around. That's what the word repentance means. Repentance means turn around and go the other way. And Jesus says to the Pergamon church, you need to repent. You need to turn around and go a different direction. So we always have to turn around from what we think should be to what it is God is intending for our life. Keep that in mind. Turn from what we think it ought to be or what we want to do to what God intends for our life. What is God's will in your life? You know, very important. Very important. Because people will ask me, how do you know what God's will is? I always tell them I don't. I just know this. It's not my will. Do you get that? It's not what I want. I mean, even Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, how did he pray? Lord, if it's possible, move this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Your will be done. Wow. Whatever God's will is, the one thing you can be certain of, it's not your will. It's what God wills. You know? It's what he's going to make of it. And the greatest thing you can come to, you, to in your life the next best thing for you in your life is whatever it is that God is going to do. So what does he tell the church at Pergamum he's going to do if they turn around and go the other direction? Listen to what he says. I love this. This is, this is where the rubber meets the road. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I will give him of some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, 
and a new name written on that stone which no one knows but he who receives it. I will give him to eat of the hidden manna. What is this hidden manna? Well, we find it in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the manna that comes down from heaven, and all who eat this bread will never die. The children of Israel ate manna in the wilderness, and that's what they had in the wilderness. They had all this manna that come down. It's really kind of amazing when you think about it. Um, uh, I, I was uh, listening to an Egyptologist talk about who followed the exodus of the children of Israel, and he went to the traditional place where the manna started for the children of Israel. And in that place, there's still residue of what the Arab-speaking people call man, short for mana. Isn't that interesting? And what it is, is it's a very sweet substance that appears onto the trees and in the dew. And there's very little of it now, but it's still there. And what they've discovered is, is that somehow God, when he brought in all of those pigeons and all of them came in, they brought all of this, uh, these insects and stuff there that created the beginnings of this manna. And the residue of it still exists to this day. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's incredible some of the stuff that's there. But the thing about that is, is the children of Israel would eat that manna and then it would melt and dissolve. You just had enough for the day. Just enough for that moment. You couldn't store it up. You couldn't go in and have yourself a, a manna fruit cellar where you could store your manna bread. Did you get that banana bread? Okay. Um, you, could, you couldn't store away. Uh, uh, I think Keith Green says, manna souffle. Couldn't store it away. You couldn't bottle it up. You couldn't put it in a jar. You couldn't keep it. It's there and it's gone. That's the amazing thing about it. Well, the same is true with Jesus. You can't put Jesus in a bottle. He is the manna that has come down from heaven. He is the bread of life. And you can't store him in a bottle. You can't bottle up Jesus. You can't put him on a shelf and take him down when you want him and when you need him and say, hey, we'll have a little bit of uh, uh, Jesus manna today. Going to cook it up. It is something that is provided for you in a moment and you must receive it in the moment that Jesus provides it. It is hidden manna that will feed your soul like nothing else. I'm always amazed what people feed their soul on, feed their life on. You know, the stuff we take in that we think will get us through. Some people it's money, some of it's power, some of the people think it's sex is going to be the answer. Some people believe foolishly that it's uh, going to be uh, even music or any such thing that we think is the answer. But as we sang earlier today, Jesus is the answer. You must feed your soul upon the presence of Jesus. None of these other things satisfy you see, whenever we have communion, that's what Jesus is alluding to. I am the bread of life. 
and you must feast on my presence when you come and take communion. But I must say to you, not everybody who receives communion communes with Jesus. Some people look at communion as just some ritual that the church has perpetuated for 2,000 years. Some people look at it as just something we've got to hurry up and get over with so that we can get to the real snacks at the restaurant. You know, and let's get this service over with so we can beat the Baptists to dinner so we don't have to stand in line. The bottom line is there's something far more important and mysterious going on in communion than we realize. And that is Jesus is reminding us that I am here and we must look past the bread to the true living presence of Jesus and feast upon him and say, Lord, I need to feed my soul on you. You are the bread of life. I need to drink the cup of redemption that you've provided through your blood, and I need to feed my soul on who you are and let you, Jesus, satisfy my soul. See, that's the most important question you have to ask yourself. Does Jesus really satisfy your soul? Is he what you are truly seeking? Is he what you really need? Is he what really... uh, Get you going in the day. Do you live your life before him, in him, through him? With him being above you and beneath you at your right and left, dwelling within and without. Are you surrounded by him? Because, my friends, he is life. There is life in none other. And I tell you this, and you can go to the bank and bank on it. Money will not make you satisfied. You will never have enough of it. You will always want a little more. You will always want to have something else. Power will not satisfy you. You can never get enough. It's an addiction. And addictions are marked by one thing. They never satisfy you for long. They want you to get more and more, and you'll never have enough power. I promise you, sex cannot satisfy you for long. It'll never be enough. You'll turn it into addiction. It will destroy your life. And if there's anything I have noticed, is that people lose the essence of what life is. And it seems to be depleted from them. If you don't think it's true, go look at the little children that run around here. Look at the enthusiasm, the life that is in them. And then turn around and look at somebody who you can see that it's just kind of life has drained out of them. My friends, Jesus has promised us what kind of life eternal life. He intends for you to be a child till you're 110 and go home to be with him. Do you realize that? He took a little child, set him in the midst of all of the disciples when they said, who is the greatest? He sets a little child and says, unless you're converted and become like them, you can't even get into the kingdom. 
You must have this life, this enthusiasm going on inside of you that only comes from Him, and you have to feed your soul upon Him. He is life, and there is no life in any other. When Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life, I am the manna come down from heaven, and you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, that was hard words. Many of his disciples didn't walk anymore with him, the scripture says. And Jesus turned to the twelve and said, Will you leave me also? And they said, Lord, where would we go? Only you have words of everlasting life. There isn't any life. The world is out there to drain you of every bit of life in you. They want to make you dull and lifeless they want to make you conform to their ways and their understandings and their ideologies. But my friends, Jesus is here to set your soul on fire, to pour into you a life that causes you to shout, that gives you joy unspeakable and full of glory. And you can live a mundane, worthless life if you want. Or you can live a full victorious life. Jesus considers eating of the hidden manna something that only overcomers can do. You've got to overcome all of this other stuff and feast on the life that he has for you. Now he goes on to say, I will give them a white stone. Scholars have debated back and forth what this white stone means and there's several things it could have meant in the ancient world. But one of the things that was dominant at the time when this text was written, because it was written during the domination of the Roman Empire, that the Roman Empire would give to athletes when they achieved a victory or somebody who had done something great, a white stone with their name on it. And it was like currency. There would be, after a great sporting event, this white stone placed in their hands, and they would go to a big banquet and show the stone, and they were immediately admitted to places they couldn't go before. If you had a stone with a white name, it could get you out of trouble with law. If you had a stone with a white, a white stone with a name on it, it could keep you from those who would want to harm you. And Jesus wants to say to you, I have something precious I will give you that will give access to me and my power and my life and my care and my watch over you. And I want you to have it. I want you to receive it. And it's going to have a new name on it. A name for you. Any of you have nicknames? Yeah. I, have you, how many of you had nicknames you hated? I did. I did. I, when I was a teenager, I started working out with weights. Of course, I had polio in my leg, and one of the things I was trying to do is make my legs stronger so that eventually they could do surgery and correct some of the problems that happened with the polio. But I, would work, I worked out with weights for five years, and I was kind of bulking up, you know? For a teenager, yeah, not like I look now. I had a 29-inch waist. A 44 chest, 16 and a half inch biceps. Me and Arnold, we walked around like this. One day I stand in front of the mirror, flexing, and my friends walked in and caught me. 
From that day on, I was known as Flex. That is not a nickname you want. But it has haunted my, me my entire life. Two years ago, my wife had it in her head to buy a new car, and what did we wind up with? A Ford Flex. It's haunted me. Uh, you know, they used to say, oh, I hate to get the cards from Steve when we're shuffling because he is so strong, he mangles it all. You know, it's like, yeah, just leave me alone. But maybe you've had terms of endearment. Those are names that are just special names that maybe a husband has for a wife or a wife for a husband that no one knows but you two. Terms of endearment might mean something far more precious. It might describe who you really are to this person. And that's what Jesus is alluding here. He's saying, I know who you really are. I know who you think you are. I know who you think you think you are. Just like Brad thinks he's Brad, but he's really Jim. You know who you think you may be. But Jesus says, I know who you really are. And when he will call your name, you will answer because it will resonate within you. And you will say, well, yes, that is who I am. Now, he may give you that name before you realize that you can even be that, as he did with Peter. Peter was somebody who was up and down, enthusiastic, but would sometimes just walk off into, you know, right, right off the edge of a cliff if he needed to, because he, he wasn't quite settled in his ways, nor solid. Yet Jesus says to him, just because he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, blessed are you, Peter, or Simon, Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. From now on, your name is going to be Peter. I think I told you a few weeks ago, that means literally in the Greek, rocky. He was Rocky Balboa. Rocky. Hey, what a solid name. I'm Rocky. But Peter was anything but a rock yet. There will be a time when Peter will deny Jesus, be afraid. He struggled with a little streak of cowardice in his life. Sometimes he was afraid of what the Jews would say. One place Peter says, I went to Jerusalem and withstood, or Paul says, I went to Jerusalem, withstood Peter to his face because he was wrong and he was to be blamed. Why? Because he wasn't quite settled. Eventually, Peter becomes settled and solid, and he is crucified in Rome, taking a stand for Jesus, and felt so unworthy to be crucified like Jesus, he requested they crucify him upside down. And that's how he died. You see, what you will be, you're now becoming that. What you will be, you're now becoming. What will be your name? Who does God see you as? Who is he calling you to be? God has 
some new things in store. New things. And those new things, those next best things, are always better than what has been. Because he's ever bringing us to something fresh and new. Do you understand that? Things that are alive are always changing. The only thing that doesn't change are things that are dead. You can go to a rock and it'll be there for a thousand years and not change at all. But you can't do that with a tree or a flower or people because you have to change. I've often heard people say of some individual and remark upon them, and I don't know totally what they mean, but they say, he has always been the same person. I don't see that as a compliment. On the other end of the spectrum, a wife might say to the, her, her husband, you're not the same man I married, and see it as a negative thing. And it could be, you could change for the worse, or you could be changing for the better. But one thing I think is important is you better be changing. People say, well, I don't like things to change. Oh, yes, you do. You, you don't mind getting a new car. Right? How many of you change your clothes? I hope you change your underwear. You better like change and better embrace it because change is always going to be coming to things that are living. That doesn't mean that all change is good. There's some change is very bad. But if you're following Jesus and you're walking in his footsteps, that is good change that leads to a new name with a white stone and hidden manna. I want you to stand with me. I want you to think about something here. There was a quotation I wanted to, you to just ponder for a moment. It's by St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine once said, in his confessions, men go, go abroad to admire the heights of mountains, the mighty waves, the broad tides of rivers, the compass of the ocean, the circuits of the stars, and yet they pass over the mystery of themselves without a thought. We can search the galaxies and think we're discovering wonderful new things, but the greatest mystery there is in the universe is you and what lies inside of you and how you are growing and what you will be. So he is calling us, drawing us to himself. And I want you to bow your heads as we get ready to sing and I want you to look into your heart 
And I want you to prepare yourself to say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be with you closer. I want to feed my soul on that hidden manna. I want that new stone. I want a new name. And just let God speak to you right now in this moment. I'm going to ask that we just sing one verse of this song through. And then I want us to pray together and invoke this Christ to come and live in us in new, deep, and fresh ways. Lord Jesus, draw us now as we contemplate, as we grow close to you. Be here. Be among us. Be with us. Be near us. Be in us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Let's sing.